Hey there, welcome to Board Game Hot Takes, the podcast where we give our immediate reactions to the hottest board games just minutes after playing them. My name's Tim. And this is Chris. This is Adam. And I'm Jen. And today we're going to talk about a couple of games that we played, Welcome To and Azul. But before we jump into a description of those games, I got some poll results for you. And uh, it's kind of relevant to tonight's episode because... Last week, we played a really long game. The game lasted about three and a half to four hours. You know, that's not always a perfect fit. Tonight, we played a couple of games that you can knock out in 20, 30 minutes each. So I asked, what's your sweet spot for board game playtime? The options I gave were less than 30 minutes, less than one hour, one to two hours, or two plus hours. Did any of you guys answer this poll? I did. And the <laughs> the answer I gave, I forget what the, the it was the medium to short range games i think was the answer that i gave yeah one to two hours on this uh, on this poll and the reason for that the farther i get into games the more i appreciate games that are quick and pithy and you can get through them in a short amount of time and that just makes for so much fun you know before i think when i started it was all it was like the big blockbuster movies you know i wanted something big i wanted to be wowed every time by huge minis and big battles and whatnot and now that I've gotten a little bit more well-rounded in my my experience with games, I really appreciate those ones that go quick and fun. And, you know, I just I think that's that's a really nice sweet spot at one to two hours, even closer to one hour, I'd say is probably even better. What would you answer, Adam? I said the the best answer for this, which was 45 minutes to 90 minutes, which wasn't <laughs> one of your choices, Tim. So that's kind of weird. Yeah, for me, a game that plays in that length in that ballpark is is nice. Kind of like Chris was saying, it's in short enough to where you can get it in, get it done, get it finished, and then you can probably replay it if you wanted to. Or if you're at the closer to the ninety minutes, you know, it doesn't overstay its welcome for me. But it's still short enough to where you can maybe play it again in a night. Now, if I'm in the right mindset and I'm ready for a longer game, three hour, four hour game, then that's fine. Sure, if I have an afternoon, a lazy afternoon, where I have uh, plenty of time to just hang out and it's kind of casual then i'm fine with the longer games but for me just those succinct what do you say chris pithy games are the ones that i'm looking for at this point what about you jen that's hilarious adam because i sat here and i was like what would my answer be about 45 minutes to 90 90 that's my range right there and i was like what is that like b.2 what option was that so... <laughs> it's not an option choose a real option and it just depends. So like tonight, we our, the games were short enough. I was like, yeah, let's play another one. And then we played the second, the second set, the first game of the second game we played. And then I was like, man, we don't get to play another one because Adam's like all the way in Florida. That's just not fair. So it depends how the game feels and how it's moving. And so these ones being short tonight were definitely um, a blessing and a reminder that it doesn't need to be an hour and a half or two hours to be satisfying. I mean, I think that's actually a really telling thing that we played, what, three games in about an hour and a half tonight. And I had about as much fun tonight playing games as I've had in a long time. And that's that's pretty cool. But Tim, what did you say about it? Well, first, Chris, you have to remember that your company makes a big difference. And so you had such great company tonight. That's why the games were fun. That's true. And I did a lot of winning, a lot of winning tonight. That's true, too. <laughs> won every game tonight. Yeah, so, um, oh, no, not every game, but but pretty close. I said one to two hours, and I will I will stand by that. Most of the time, shorter games like Azul, like Welcome To, like Cascadia, that's not my ideal for a game night. But I can have a lot of fun with them. I had a blast tonight playing these shorter games, and sometimes I do. 
once it starts to get over two hours, it has to be a really special game. Ark Nova is a great example. We played it last week, lasted like three and a half hours, and I enjoyed every minute of it. And I want to play it again right now. So there are some games that can that don't outstay their welcome, that they can take that long. And you just need that that arc. Terraforming Mars, I've never gotten tired of playing a long game of Terraforming Mars. But I have gotten tired of playing a long game of Star Wars Rebellion. And I've gotten tired of playing some other really long games as well. I got invited last week to a game of, what's the big epic 4X game? Eclipse Twilight Imperium. Twilight Imperium, yeah. So I got a, I got invited to a big game of Twilight Imperium 4th Edition with eight people. This is going to be a game that's going to run eight to ten hours. I, you know, I kind of want to experience that at some point in my life. But to be honest, that sounds like misery to me. Sitting there for eight to ten hours with a group of people. I don't know most of them. Probably someone's going to bug the hell out of me after the first hour or so. And it just doesn't sound like fun to play that long. So I think one to two hours is a really nice sweet spot where I feel like I get a full game in, but it's not, it doesn't overstay its welcome. Man, I got to say, I got to really like the people I'm hanging out with to go eight to 10 hours. <laughs> totally. Tim, there's a famous quote that goes, Tim, you just don't like people. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I think that's why eight hours might not work with Twilight Imperium for you. <laughs> but you also said something about Star Wars Rebellion. That's like the best game to, to go four or five hours. That game's amazing every single play of it, every single time. So I don't know why you would ever say such a thing. It's a good game, but it's just a little too long. It's a little, John, would you play a four-hour game of Star Wars Rebellion? No. Yeah. Has, has Jen ever played a game of Star Wars Rebellion? No. Okay. No, because it's four hours long. No way. Jen, would you play a four-hour game if it was based on, like, Hamilton? No. <laughs> keep going this is fun <laughs> your answers are a little too verbose so I'm going to stop asking <laughs> I'm not sure what it would be I think that my attention span would disappear at some point and I would and I'm a talker so you're saying you want to play a four hour game what you just asked me is Jen do you want to play a six and a half hour game yeah, <laughs> <So>. right. <laughs> That's right. yeah. but I think what we're highlighting here is that it's so situationally dependent I mean if you've got a full day and you've got a bunch of people around that you like playing games with you know them you know, you can lean into a big game and that's cool I, we did that over TimCon and I had a great time playing some of those big games we played but a lot of times, that's not the situation. You're playing with your family who is maybe not, is not as into games as you are, or you're playing with people that you are not as into the hobby. And in those situations, having a game like Azul or Welcome To, the ones we're going to talk about tonight, I mean, that's golden because you can get a lot of people who aren't hardcore into games to play those and have a good time. And that's a, a real win in my book. Yeah, that's true, Chris. But also, does that make it your ideal game night? Like, I, it's it's great that you can introduce new people to a game, but my choice of a game night is never going to be to pull somebody in that doesn't want to play games and, and hope that they have a fun time with it, even if it's a shorter game, versus playing a really great epic game with people that care about the game. So I hear what you're saying there. On the other hand, I think there is a approachability aspect here where you get more than one to two hours and I have to set aside a certain amount of time. So if a game takes longer than that, when am I going to get it played? Who knows? Is, is it going to be... It's got to be like a weekend set aside or my wife's got to be traveling or something like that. So it does make it a lot harder to get those longer games in. And I think there's there's a lot of truth to that. So on a scale from Jen to Tim with Jen being it's all about the people and Tim being it's all about the game, you just have to decide <laughs> where you fall. Well, so here's a follow up question. If you had your choice between a big game with a group of people you like, in other words, you know, a good scenario for a big game or playing 
a good but relatively light game where you wow a bunch of non-gamers and they say, man, what a great time I had. That was so much fun. Which one would you pick? Both fun times, I would 100% pick the experience that was more fun for me, which is playing with friends, playing with people All I right. care about and like, and, and I have a good time with it. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, I would want to wow the people because I, I want to bring more people into to doing this with me, right? And so the more people that can do it with me, the more opportunities for the lightweight games that we have. And then if we really enjoy those lightweight games and we're having fun, then maybe we find some lightweight plus to midweight games. And I don't know. I mean, you're kind of we're kind of just recapping what Tim did to me. I did it to you with Castles of Burgundy, which was like a two and a half hour first play. So I think you totally shot your whole argument in the foot right there. No, we started with like <laughs> Sheephead. We've talked about this. What episode is that? Please refer to our origin stories. I like the so. long-term investor strategy here of Jen and Chris, where you, you introduce some new people, you wow them, and then you open the door for all these other games, different experiences. You bring more people into the hobby, and you go from there. I don't like you guys making me sound like the bad guy here. No, I, <laughs> I, I, I do totally get what you're saying, Tim. And honestly, I feel like that's sort of two bookends to an amazing gaming experience. One is playing a game with new gamers that you have a great time with. Maybe it's a lightweight game, but they say, this is something I could really get into. And the other is playing a heavyweight game with people you really like that are already into the hobby. And I mean, both of those are really amazing experiences. They are. Yeah, absolutely. 100% agree on that. They can both be really fun. Well, this is how people responded to the poll on Twitter. So their preferred game time, less than 30 minutes, was only 6%. So pretty small. But again, these are people on Twitter following a board game podcast, probably active gamers. Less than one hour is 24%. So pretty decent amount. A quarter of people want to keep it under an hour. One to two hours was our sweet spot. Well, it falls on the edge of Adam and Jen's sweet spot since they didn't actually pick an answer that I gave. But 64% were in that range. And I, I think that's great. I think there's a lot of great games you can fit into that one to two hour time slot right that you know gives you a big enough experience to feel like you got a lot done without um, overstaying its welcome and then two plus hours six percent said two plus hours and i think if we did redo that poll and we put in <laughs> option c b2 whatever you want to call it that it would be like 98 percent. i've given you guys all the opportunity to run social media <laughs> accounts and nobody's taking the lead here so feel free to throw your own polls out wherever you'd like to run a social media account you most of the fun of these polls is ganging up on and saying how those <laughs> Answer slots are ridiculous. <laughs> and Tim throws down the gauntlet. Also, I have posted at least like maybe a dozen times on Instagram. So check out our Instagram. And <laughs> it's awesome. And Ravensburger contacted me and they wanted to like feature one of our pictures that we took of, of Castles of Burgundy. And so, I mean, come on. Big, like, nice. Big time. That's amazing. Castles of Burgundy. All right, cool. Well, <laughs> I think that will wrap up that conversation. Let's jump into a description of Welcome to. In Welcome To, from one to, well, unlimited players become architects trying to build the American dream in the perfect 1950s subdivision. Each player starts with their neighborhood in a blank slate of three streets, with 10, 11, and 12 building lots, respectively. To build these dream homes, players will choose from a common supply of options, consisting in each round of three house number cards, each paired with an effect card. Once a player selects a pair of cards, they first build a new home by writing that number on a building lot. The good news, players can number their houses as they see fit, with one major caveat. Houses on a street must be numbered in ascending order from left to right. 
So for example, one could place a 10 immediately to the right of a 5, but they couldn't place that 10 to the right of an 11. And if they did place that 10 to the right of the 5, they would effectively eliminate the possibility of using 6 through 9 in that same street. After selecting a building lot, the player will apply the effect from the companion card. These range from adding a pool to a lot with a pool space, putting in fences that turn groups of houses into an estate, or hiring a real estate agent that can increase the value of a particular sized estate. Each game also features three building plans that players can work to achieve. Generally, these plans call for a certain number of estates of a given size, and they're a source of big points. If a player finds themselves unable to use any of the three cards in a combo in a given turn, then they'll receive the dreaded building permit denial. Man, I'm shivering just thinking about it. So play will continue until one player has either gotten three permit denials, completed all three city building plans, or filled in all their available lots. At that point, scores are tallied and the player with the most points wins. Welcome to was designed by Benoit Turpin and is published by Blue Cocker Games. All right, thanks for the description, Chris. Adam, anything that stands out to you from a game player mechanisms point of view with Welcome To? Well, this is the first, I guess that's not true. It's not the first roll and right? I guess Rajas of the Ganges, the Dice Charmers are the first roll and right? But this one is so clean and simple. Rajas, you have kind of a complex cascade of things going on and all these combos going here and there. This one is so clean, just the layout of it. You have these, this grid of houses that you're just writing numbers on. How clean and simple is that? That whole concept is just so great. And you're going numerically from 1 to 15 or whatever. The layout of it is just so clean. I don't know if that's a mechanism, but just the way it's presented is first and foremost what pops out to me. And, and that's something I love experiencing. Yeah, you know, I, I think what, what always impresses me with this game is that you think there's such a simple decision to make every time that why isn't everybody making the same exact decision? But it is pretty interesting how everybody's decisions cascade in a completely different way. And even the first round, you know, maybe two people pick the same choice and then the other two people pick a couple different choices. But then that completely dictates what they can choose on future rounds. It changes what everybody's doing, what their choices are every time. And that always su surprised me. I figured with how simple the game is, how straightforward the choices are, that it would just kind of run itself. It just run on rails. And that, and that really doesn't happen. So I'm pretty impressed by that with how simple this system is, that it, it actually gives you some interesting choices to make every turn. It's the variety of different options you have to score points. And that's really where that diversity comes in, where you, you can't, ever, someone's not going to be doing always the same thing as somebody else, because you can go with building pools. That That's a big one. You can get big points for building pools, but there's a limited number of pool spaces and you have to draw a card, a number card, as well as a pool space. And then you have to build it in the right location. And you can get big points, but you can't guarantee that you're going to get the right cards. And those are pretty far and you know, few and far between. And there's all these different minor decisions like that. Like, do you want to go with a real estate agent and drive up the price or the value of a particular you know, size of estate? Or do you want to build the pools? Or do you want to build parks in your neighborhoods? And there's so many different ways you can go about that. I've always focused on the estate sizes. And I think a lot of people that play this game do because those are some big points associated with that. But my son, who's 10, has killed me a couple of times on this because he focused entirely on building parks where you can also get some really big points. And so, you know, I got the first, you know, first grab at a couple of building plans that got me big points, but I still end up losing games because there's other ways to get those points. And if you really focus on one thing versus another, 
I mean, you can really you can really knock those points out of the park. I would say that's true for everything except for pools, which I focus on every time, and I'm terrible at this game, and I always lose at it. <laughs> Jen, any thoughts on the uh, mechanisms here? Taking it back a step, this was one on my top five games for 2022, that episode we did a couple weeks ago, and so I was really excited to play it with this specific group of people, and it did. It definitely, it came through with shining colors. And I think it's the simplicity for me, and it's the fact that it's so fun and so simple. You can't fluff, right? You can't just, just pick randomly and move on. You actually have to think. But somehow it allows for that social aspect to be 100% in play the whole time. And so as Chris mentioned, he had so much fun tonight. This was a great game night. For me, that was because we got the dopamine hits in our brain and then the dopamine hits of connecting with one another as well. And so it was such a nice balance of those two things. Yeah, I think that's a great point, Jen. And, you know, we play a lot of games online with with this group because we got to record the podcast. We all live in different locations. And this is probably the first game that we played on an online platform where we were, because it's so simple and it's kind of, you know, everyone's taking their turns at the same time, but they're so simple that it you don't have to stop and be like, hey, I got to take my turn. Okay, Jen, stop talking. You got to take your turn. We were sitting there having a full conversation and the, the game was just flowing. And that was great. In this platform, in this environment, that was great. And I think it works the same way when you're playing in person here because you can sit there being making these simple choices and actually having like a full social interaction at the table. And that, that says a lot. That does a lot for a game, even if it is below the recommended length of one to two hours. Okay. I was making a comparison to like bingo here or something. You're all kind of sitting there. It's a social situation. You got your little daubers out. Stomp, 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 stomp. There's the, there's the letter. There's the number. And you're just dobbing it out and hanging out with friends and having a good time. But this game has that extra little twist of having like a long-term strategy. Three or four things to go for. Do you want to get those fences and chop up your subdivisions? Are you going to try to do those pools, which I heard are for fools? Or, you know, for the parks and make it very lush and very green, lots of greenways going on. So there are those fun decisions to make during the game. It's not just, oh, G45, is it there? But, or no, it's not there. I guess I'll just hang out a little longer and have another sip of beer and hopefully my little ball rolls next time. That's what makes this game stand out from Bingo. Obviously, it's better than Bingo. Well, and one of the funny things that's actually similar to Bingo, but I think is a real highlight of this game is the fact that everybody is drawing off a common pool and everybody can use the same cards. So it's not like someone's snatching out a card from underneath you. The cards go out in the pairs. One, a number card, and one is a, an effect card. And everybody can use everybody can use the same one if they want to. Everybody's taking their turns at the same time, talking smack to each other, having fun. And then at the end of that, you see what everybody did. And I love that. I think that's so much fun. And I'm, I, every time that little, you know, we see what everybody else did, I'm kind of like, huh, well, that's interesting. So I just, I love the fact that it doesn't keep you waiting in this kind of, you know, roundabout where everybody's taking their turns. I think in person too, you'd be able to see the neighbor's little subdivision right next to you. Like, I don't know, you put a fence there. Huh? I don't know if I would have done that, but okay, whatever you want to do, you know, you can have that little extra next level of interaction, which I think would be great. You know, the in-person experience is a little different because I will tell you that the first ra- the very first roll or pull of the cards of the first game we played, Tim like was covering up his city. And I was like, what? what's going to go on? Like, what could possibly happen right now if I see whatever your first choice is? Well, to be honest, the, the reason I did that, because it is all open information when you're sitting around a table with four or five people and everyone can see their cards. The reason I did that is that I didn't want to influence the other people that were new to the game 
to just make the same choices because I think the game is only interesting when people are going in different directions and making different strategic choices. Like I don't normally do that when I'm playing with people that I've been playing with for a little while, everyone's just doing their own thing, but I didn't want Jen to be like, Oh, what's Tim doing? Well, I'll just do the same thing he does. Cause then that totally takes away the, the interesting fun of like who's racing to what, who's getting permit refusals before what thing. That's, that's also a little deceptive, Tim, because it might make people think that you're pretty good at this game. <laughs> that is, that would be deceptive. <laughs> Let's move on here. We Let's jump into the production and theme of Welcome To. Chris, I want you to speak to this because I feel like this game might be a little, little close to your heart. I think this game is absolutely amazing. I mean, there is nothing grand about this production, but boy, does it suck you in into this little world in such an effective way, just using a deck of cards and a scrap of paper for each person with their neighborhood. I am a huge fan of mid-century aesthetic, architecture, cocktails, music, all of that. And man, this game just brings you right in. You feel like you're in small town USA in the 1950s. The production is amazing in that sense. The art, it's fun. And it does exactly what it's supposed to do. It's supposed to give you this sense of style and place as you're making these decisions but it doesn't put any of that in the way. It's a very simple game. There's only a limited number of choices that you can make. But everything is incorporated in this stylistic way that just makes this so much fun and makes it feel like you're you're laying out a subdivision in 1950s Ohio or wherever. And I just think that's an absolute blast. It's It's one of those rare occasions when a game does something so abstract and yet at the same time manages to incorporate theme in a way that just makes a game incredibly fun. The reason Chris likes this so much is he, he's the only one of us that was an adult in the 1950s. Oh, that's an exaggeration. Ah, uh, here we go with the old jokes. Easy target. I have a question, an ignorant American question. I know we have some listeners in the UK. Is mid-century modern, is that unique to the United States? Or was it also happening in the rest of the world? Well, interestingly, and I'll jump in on this, even though I'm not from overseas, Danish modern was one of the hallmarks of American mid-century modern. You know, I'm not an expert in the field, but there was definitely aspects of this that were happening over in Europe as well. And so I think we imported some of that. The result is what we normally think of as mid-century modern. Because is it the designer from Europe? Mm -hmm. For me, mid-century modern is 100% Palm Springs. And so I lived in Los Angeles for 13 years and spent a lot of time out there on professional retreats and then vacations. And then Tim and Danielle had a place out there. And so for me, it just felt a little bit like being on vacay. So that was neat when that it would be thematic with mid-century modern architecture. Okay, to follow up and um, reduce my ignorance just a bit, the designer, Benoit Turpin, lives in France, in Toulouse, France. So I don't know if that's where he's from or if he specifically modeled the game after American mid-century modern, but I'm curious to know if that was based on European inklings or if that was strictly an American mid-century modern theme that he was going for. I don't want to be Americentric. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Anyway, the, the aesthetic obviously very cool here. And, and you can probably see from our recent logo that we're kind of pulling from that a little bit as well. Chris uh, drove that to some extent, but I, I think we all like that style to to some extent. So it, it works really well here for us. Let's jump into the gameplay tonight. Do any of you guys have any specific moments in gameplay that stood out to you? This one for me is a slow burn. There's nothing. There's no really like holy cow, that was an amazing card, Vince, thing you just did, and you divided up that thing from a five into a three and a two, and you got an explosion. Of... 
there's no kind of moments like that for me. It's just a very slow burn. And once you get towards the end, I do like that kind of build. There is a build. Are you going to be able to pull this off? Are you going to have to take a what's a decline permit or the, the words that inspire fear into Chris's soul there? Permit refusal, yeah. If there's that <laughs> slow build, and I love how that crescendo is there, and, and the ending here is very satisfying. So as it builds towards the end, that's the moment for me when it gets towards the end of the game and are you going to be able to fit everything in exactly where you want to and did all that planning pay off? I agree with the the satisfying part, but I got to disagree with the slow build because I feel like there is this huge level of pressure and stress, in particular with regard to the building plan cards because everybody wants those and they're hard to get and they take some time. And every time you don't put a house in just the right place to meet one of those building plans, you know, you're sort of taking your chances. And then once you get halfway through a game and you know people are closing in on those cards, I feel like the it ratchets the pressure up to the point where it's almost unbearable thinking, is this the turn where, you know, Tim or Jen or Adam is going to get that building card that I've been shooting for that's going to get me 13 points, which is huge in this game? There was one game where I, Jen was kind of talking about, well, you know, I don't, I don't really know what I'm doing. And next thing you know, she's got double the points of anybody else in the game. And I think that was because of those building cards. But I think those, that's the big moments in this game. When somebody gets those cards or does something that gets them those big point boosts, to me, my blood pressure is going up this whole time waiting for someone to get those big point boosts. Yeah, they can be deceiving, though, because with the moment you're speaking of when I got all those points... That was great. It was super exciting. But I had spent so much effort concentrating on them that I had eliminated opportunities for scoring on almost every other front. And this is the first time I really went after them. I had, I mean, again, I've only played it today and one other day. But going after them was satisfying in the moment, but it didn't pay off in the long run because I got solid third place both times by by quite a bit. And so it might have downed the morale for the rest of the team for a little while, but it definitely didn't pay off in the long run. You know, and I ended up with fourth place in this one, and I took first on two of those cards in one of the games and, and still took fourth place on it. That shocked me because obviously I've been, pl- I've been playing this game a lot lately with my family, and to me those were like the only way you could win the game. And so I'm like shaking to my core with how little I know how to win at this game right now. <laughs> but really, the, the moment that stood out to me tonight was literally the fact that we were having a conversation, talking about somebody's day without having to interrupt them and say, Adam, take your turn. Like mm-hmm. we could just sit here and play the game while we were having a social situation. It's not necessarily the game I want to play every time, but it's it's pretty awesome that you can have that fun experience playing a game that makes you think a little bit, gives you some strategy and still just interact with the people around you. And I really appreciate that for it. So with all that said, would you request to play this game again? Jen, why don't you start? This was your second time playing. What do you think of Welcome To on a second play? I really liked it. I like that there's just enough strategy to keep your your brain happy and that there's enough room to have some good conversation. I like the theme. It doesn't like wow me like Chris. And when Chris, you talk about it, like you sell it so well, it makes me want to play it again and think harder about the theme. So I think that was kind of cool. Like listen to you just be really excited about this game and be able to describe it in a world that feels like very like movie like is really, really cool. And so at this point, I feel like we need to play it again immediately because I want to see if I can get myself in the same headspace as Chris because I can only imagine how the enjoyability rises. Adam, what about you? Will you be requesting it again? Yeah, I will. Will be there's always going to be the right time for this game in the in the right you know 15 minutes in the right whatever 15 minutes 45 minutes to 90 minutes the perfect game length this game is going to be there for you however long you want to play it 
it's so breezy and perfect for the right moment if you're looking for something light that this game is always going to have a spot and I'll be requesting it many times in the future. By you, Tim. Yeah, I agree. Um, I think it's the right fit for the right group. And I've had a lot of fun every time we play it. If somebody asks for it, I'm happy to play it. But I also think there's going to be a lot of opportunities where I'm like, we got half an hour. Let's just jump into Welcome to. And there are other roll and rights that I like more because they're more th- they're more my style of game. But this one is perfect for the right time slot and for the right you know the right group, the right people. I taught this to my ten year old daughter in five minutes, and we were up and playing it. She didn't particularly like it. She had a hard time assessing when she should be trying to place numbers. You know, like in the right distance from stuff. It was easy to teach to her, and I think any adult's gonna pick that up a little bit easier and, and get into it. So I think it's got the right fit for the right group. One thing I'll say is last week on our podcast, I talked about this game, playing it about 20 times and feel like I had it solved. Like you just got to get the fences and you're done. So I decided I wanted to start using the advanced construction cards and that made it better for me. But then I played with you guys tonight, especially Chris and Adam, who have been playing a lot. And I just realized I have no idea what I'm talking about. And there's a lot of different strategies you can get to here. There's a lot of gameplay here. So I um, I was pretty impressed with how deep this game can go and how little I know about it, even after how much I've played it recently. Chris, what about you? Would you request to play it again? I think this game hits on all cylinders. Absolutely, I would. I mean, it's not a centerpiece game for a big game night with hardcore gamers, but heck, I mean, you, you could even do that. I mean, if we sat down and mixed up a batch of martinis or Manhattans and put on some Frank Sinatra and played this game, you know, a few rounds of this. I mean, that'd be amazing. But it's also something that I can play with my 10-year-old, which, like you, I did, and he wailed on me. I mean, it was kind of embarrassing, really. And it's a game that you can whip out in 15 minutes. It's great fun. I've actually had my, my wife, who's not particularly you know, into games, has jumped on this one, and not only jumped on this game, but jumped on BGA just to play this game, that it's one that you can bust out when you have your non-gamer friends over. Teach to them in five minutes and still have a great time playing a deep, thoughtful game without putting a lot of effort into doing that. And I think that is absolutely priceless. And I have to say a big thank you to this group because as we talked about a second ago, it did knock one of my games off of my to-do list for the year. And I just am super glad that I got to do it with you guys. Right on. Well, why don't we talk about another one of the games on our to-do list for this year, Azul, which was on Chris's list of games he wanted to play this year. Chris, give us a description of Azul. Azul is a two to four player tile laying game in which players are artists working hard to impress Portuguese King Manuel I by creating the most beautiful tile mosaics in the Royal Palace of Evora. So the playfield consists of a series of tile maker displays, a central pool, and an individual player board representing a wall the player is attempting to decorate with the vibrant colorful tiles also known as azulejos. Each round the displays are filled randomly with tiles so that a given display may have one or several of a particular tile. And then players will take turns selecting a particular design from a display or if there are tiles in the central pool from that location as well. And in doing so, the player may take all of the design in a given location. Once a player selected a tile or tiles, they must fit those tiles into one of five staging rows next to their wall. But this isn't necessarily easy. There are various restrictions on where tiles may or may not be placed. For example, each row is limited to a certain number of tiles and a player can't place tiles of different designs in the same row. Even worse, if a player is stuck choosing tiles they can't use, those tiles must be placed on the floor 
where they result in negative points. Once all the tiles have been selected, players will identify each completed role in the staging area and add a tile of that design to their wall, scoring points for each tile as well as combo points for adjoining tiles and deducting points for tiles that they were forced to place on the floor. After that, a new round will begin and play will continue until one player has completed at least one full row on their wall. The tiles will be scored one final time at that point, and the player with the most points will be the winner. Azul was designed by Michael Kiesling and is published by Plan B Games. All right, so let's talk about the gameplay mechanisms of Azul. And Chris, I actually want to start with you, even though you just gave us that, that nice description there. But this was one of your earliest plays of the game. Me, Adam, and Jen have played it quite a bit. So what did you think of the mechanisms of Azul? Anything that stands out to you here? This is a game where there's that question we always have of single or multiplayer solitaire we play a game like this where you're dealing with your own tableau and you're trying to lay out in this in this game you're trying to lay out tiles and you're trying to lay them out in your wall then the question comes up how are you able to influence what other people are doing and how can they influence your board and in this game it is freaking brutal because you can very easily see exactly what it is that your opponents need and you can so easily stymie them. I mean, I think half of the discussion, half of the table talk around, you know, what we were doing tonight was about how to screw the next person who was going after the person who was taking their turn. So I think that is actually pretty cool because it, it creates this game where it's this very, um, a very abstract, you know, a tile laying game. And yet you're very profoundly able to influence the people that are taking their turns after you. And I think that, that that's, a, that's a really cool combination. I was just going to comment on two things that I discovered. This is not a new game to me. This is a game that goes all the way back to probably the beginning of uh, my introduction to gaming. Two things that came out to me tonight that were, were different were the turn order, playing with four people. I think I've played with four people. This is the third time I've played with four people. It was so influential. And again, this is the first time I've played with four people with the actual rules and not Tim's rules. So just rub it in. So let's clarify that. Playing with four people and playing with the real rules is a brutal game. That's where the, <laughs> the brutality <laughs> sounds like we're playing some like blood rage or whatever. Like it just sounds like we're playing, but it did. It felt a little like that. Like there was definitely like, you know, intent to to hurt in that sense. But the, again, the turn the turn order was one thing that was big. And I ended up being last in the turn order almost every single time because Adam would grab the first player token. And it gives you that negative point, but what he wanted something, I don't know if he, his, I'd be curious to hear, Adam, did you want, was that strategy for you? Did you honest to goodness want what was in the middle? Like, tell me about your thought process and then say sorry, because it really did affect me. Jen, I'm not sorry at all about what happened. Sorry, not sorry. <laughs> that first player token is, can be huge for you, especially in a four player game. And especially if you're going to leave some rows open, that is you have semi two snowflakes in your row that needs four snowflakes to complete. So you want to make sure you're going to be able to go first in that next round, especially with four players. They're going to be able to take all the snowflakes before you can get to them potentially. So you want to make sure you can go first and grab what you need before other everyone else has a chance to get it. So that's one of the reasons I like Tana, especially if I'm going to have one of those, you know, an open row or even two open rows, you definitely want to go first because you might not have the option to fill those up. So that was my thought process in taking the minus one. And how big is the minus one in this game? It's not. If you're scoring by the end, you're scoring five points, four points per tile, and you get seven points per column that you have completed. 
So minus one, minus two here and there is not a big deal if you're going to be able to get four or five points off completing your row in subsequent rounds. That was my thought process there. But this game, the interaction is just fantastic. Oh, Tim needs uh, three golden tiles. Well, here you go, Tim. Here's six golden tiles. What do you want to do with those? Have fun with that. The way you can control that central pot and dump stuff in there that people don't need and that you can kind of count out and see who's going to get stuck with what. There's just more and more nuance here the more I play it. I've been playing it tons lately on Board Game Arena and just seeing all the, I, sometimes I still get hammered by these guys that have been playing it forever and can math it out. Especially a two-player game. It's a strict duel and you can really kind of determine the way it's going to go down. And some of these guys are just amazing. Guys and gals are just amazing and just schooling me at this game routinely. Tim, what do you think of this play? I play, I've been playing this game for several years. I've probably played 50-plus games of it, and I still feel like Adam is Neo, right? He's, like, the one playing this game because every time I'm playing with him, he just, like, sees five turns ahead of him. He's, like, seeing the green lines coming down the screen, and I just can't even I can't even figure out how he's keeping up that much. So I'm impressed with how much depth this game has for being a fairly simple rule set. I will say that the one thing that's that, that I, that I want to call it as an, a mechanism here is that there's strategy that comes out. There's a, there's a number of ways for how simple you can play this game. It's just a bunch of little colored tiles on your board. Do you want to kind of build up and clump all your tiles together so that you get a bunch of points on every tile that gets moved over? Do you want to focus on the end game bonuses by getting, you know, all of one color and completing columns and stuff like that? I still am always finding interesting ways to try to score points here um, after a lot of plays. From a mechanism perspective, I just, I'm impressed by how simple this game is and, and how deep it is. I, I can't even think of another game that kind of meets that intersection in such an in, intense way. That's that's all I'm going to say about it, because there's not a lot of mechanisms to talk about here. It's just, it's pretty impressive what it manages to pull together. Chris, what are you thinking in your first few plays? This is one of my games on my top five I want to play list. So we actually crossed off two today. We crossed off one of Jen's with Welcome To, and we crossed off one of mine with Azul. Interestingly, both of them are games that you can teach to a non, you know, someone who hasn't played it before in probably five minutes or less, and you can jump right into it. And so, like Tim said, there's not a ton to talk about in terms of mechanisms, but I think what's interesting is that this game takes a series of relatively simple mechanisms similar to Welcome To and turns them into a very deep decision set that makes for a really fun game. And I think that's kind of a cool through line with these two games that we played tonight that are both quick, easy games that you can introduce to almost anybody, and yet a hardcore gamer can enjoy them because there's really deep decision-making being done. Cool. Well, let's talk about the theme in production, and I'm just going to jump in and say the one thing, thick, chunky tiles, fun to have in your hands. I like the production here for what a simple, streamlined game it is. You guys have anything else to talk about with the production? Yeah, I did what you said. It's it is super fair. They feel good in your hands. I think that was one of the first games where I was like the actual pieces can make a big difference in how you experience a game. Because imagine if those tiles were not as shiny or as smooth or whatever. They had a texture and it didn't make you. Feel, it would totally change the game for me. How they sound in the bag when you when you shake them up. It adds you know it adds fun and excitement to the game. And so I think that that is important. What if they were like thin Castles of Burgundy, you know, cardboard chits on there? 
And yeah, well, that wouldn't that wouldn't work. Luckily, Castleburn Z is like the greatest game ever. So like the production value aside, um, it still survives. Debatable statements coming from Jin <laughs> over there. Production here is fantastic. Like you said, Jin, the clank of the tiles. It's like if you've ever seen some of those backgammon, you know, the pieces there are just so cool. You want to touch them. Mahjong. Mahjong. There you go. Yeah, the square tile. The tactileness of this game is, just has that appeal. There's a lot of, uh, I want to mention there's some third-party overlays and stuff, and there's actually expansions, Frosted Glass, I think it's called, that uh, Plan B Games makes itself. You can overlay the player board so the tiles don't slide around if you bump it or if you're a sneezer, so that'll keep the tiles locked in. And your little score piece, too, that thing can get bumped around. You might go from, like, 35 points to 55 points all of a sudden if it slides down one little space, so. Question, um, do you, are you a sneezer? Do you play regularly with a sneezer? Is there a concern about sneezing? Is that an occupation? <laughs> oh, man, sneezers are everywhere. I can't believe you haven't bumped into these people they're everywhere like you'd just be playing a game out at the park they're coming around sneeze on your stuff and it's all gone what are you gonna do yeah. you need these expansions you need to keep your pieces in place it's it's yes. a little price to pay to protect yourself from a sneezer yes money well spent i will say i've never thought about the theme of this game before and then listening to chris like read aloud what he was reading aloud at the beginning i was like Oh, okay. Well, that's where it comes from. I've just played it. I mean, in my world and how I play with him, it is super abstract. It's like there is definitely some some rugs and you grab your tiles and you put them in the thing and then something happens. I don't know. I'm just playing a tile game at that point in time. So tonight was the first time that I went ahead and actually played it. And the cool thing that I think that I, the connection that I made is that it has something to do like with, with Portugal, right? I was like, why in the rule book is the last person that went to Portugal, the person that gets to go first. And I have played with that rule. And I mean, nobody, no, nobody I've ever played with has gone to Portugal or maybe it was the same person every time. And so it was like, no, we'll do something. Whoever is the funniest today or whoever is sitting closest to the, the door. Right. But it definitely is brand new information that this is set in Portugal. And now the whole first player token makes so much more sense to me. So that was really, really exciting. So let me explain why this is, because anytime I try to explain the fluff on a game and like what the theme is, my wife's like, let's just get to playing. I don't want to hear about any of that nonsense. I don't want to, I don't want to hear the story. I don't care about the backstory. And so I just don't explain it anymore. So Jenna, I apologize. You're suffering for Danielle's disinterest in theme, her uh, anti-thematic sensibilities i gotta step in and defend danielle here i think it's all in the delivery of the theme i could hear i could listen to chris talk about any theme anytime and i'd be just fully engaged but when i hear tim try to tell me about the species of gaia project i'm just like oh god can i just go well i don't remember who the first player was tonight on board game arena but i really want to know like did someone email someone at board game arena and say like i went i did i went to portugal last <laughs> it's in your profile when you sign up for board game arena when was the last time you went to portugal you have to put it show in. your passport <laughs> i've never been to portugal and that's why i have a 78 percent on board game arena it's now been decided what's funny is that like anybody who's lived in you know southern california the southwest has seen these before i mean these are based on spanish tiles that were you know introduced i think originally by the moors back in like you know a long time ago but i had a bathroom that was tiled in these in long beach i mean the crappy like cheap versions of these azulejos but it's something that you know you see and you never think about and then you put them in a game like this where they're the centerpiece and i just think that's so fun i mean it's just so interesting and the history of it just makes for such a fun experience the theme, the production, 
I love the tiles in this one. I think the only thing you could do to improve this is to play it with actual azulejos. For sure. When you Google azulejos, you get tile contractors and you get a tequila company. So, I mean, both of which are perfect for this game. It is. Google this. This is fun times. All right. So favorite moments of the game tonight. Jen, what do you think? Any Anything that stood out to you? I, I enjoyed any time that there was just the trash talk at the table was really fun. We had a, it was good natured ribbing and I had a really good time. So thanks for playing with me. The whole game, the whole game was fun. Mine was that at the end of the game, we had one round where I don't know, there was like six golden tiles in there and seven black tiles and eight snowflake tiles. And who's going to have to like bite the bullet and take some of these excess and just get swamped in Azulejos so that was fun to watch that as that went around. I think somebody could have taken a single red and been okay. And then somehow, I don't know. It was fun to see how that all broke down. I was biting my nails. Am I going to be okay here? Or am I get totally screwed? Ended up working out okay for me. I think it worked out great because I got the snowflakes. I was able to put those in. I got all five rows of snowflakes. And that helped out my, my bonus score. It's because you were like reading the matrix there. I saw it all coming down. I jumped off the building. I dodged some bullets. I won the game. Well, for me tonight, you know, there was a moment where like we were coming in, I think it was the fourth, we were coming in the fourth round and right, this game can end on the fifth round. So we're, we're in the fourth round and it is even Steven. It was like 27, 28, 28, 29. That was the scores at that point. So it was like, it could be anybody's game. And I pulled a tile that was going to give me my second big bonus. Like I was going to end up with like 17 points in bonus here. I was like, I'm going to have this locked down in the next round. But I was the one that got stuck with that big pile of tiles in the middle. So I ended up getting like a negative 11 points in that round. We go into the fifth round and I've got like 10 to 15 points less than the rest of you. But then I realized nobody finished the games in the fifth round. So we had another round to go. It was just such a blast to just kind of see all of that come together. Like I ended up getting another round of bonuses and I'm still going to beat me, but it was so close. And it was like, I was so far behind coming into that one. So it was a fun up and down for me of like, oh, I think I, I just nailed this big bonus. Oh, I just got, you know, trashed on with this big pile of negative points. So it definitely had a lot more highs and lows. I will say that this was my favorite game of Azul that I've ever played. I said that too. You, I, I had said that when we were actually playing. It really was my my favorite game of Azul that Azul that has ever. It's the best game of Azul that, was that ever, has ever in been the history played of ever. Azul. Absolutely, and I've played four yes. player a few times with this, and it's always my favorite way to play. Every time I play it, I'm like, this is so good at four players. And now playing with the real rules at four players, even better. Um, but playing with you guys and yeah. just everybody like trash talking and. Oh, don't let him take that. He's going to get, oh, oh, Chris took that from me. You know, it was just so much. It was such a blast. So this game continues to surprise me after playing it for like three plus years and still having fun with it. I think to further drive that point home, like we all, like Adam's in Florida or we would have played another game, right? Like we would have, you know, totally jumped on it. Because I think that for me, I know that I am enjoying a game when before it's even done, I want to play again. And so we weren't even done. And I was like, no, let's keep this party going, right? Yeah, there's a reason why this game is a modern classic. I mean, this is, I mean, there is so much fun to be had here. For my my special moment of the game, as usual, it's not a specific moment. It's a series of moments. To me, it was every time it was just about to be my turn, looking at everybody else's board and going, how can I screw them? How can I not give them what yeah. they're looking for? And Tim's laughing because he always says, "Is the victim. Tim's is the victim, victim. right? <laughs> you know, it's that it's seeing what it is I need, 
what it is everybody else needs and making those, you know, those really hard choices between do I take what I really need and then potentially give Adam or Jen or Tim what they need as well? Or do I do something that may be harmful to me, but at the same time, you know, will prevent them from getting some big point bonus? I mean, it's that it's that interaction that you normally get in games with a lot of, you know, combat and direct interaction that happens in a very different way in this game. And I just thought that was an absolute blast. All right, cool. Well, let's talk about our final thoughts and would you request to play this game again? And Chris, I want to start with you again here because this is a game that you were very resistant to for a long time. You, you don't like abstract games. And so anytime we talked about this, you're like, that sounds awful. And finally, we talked it up so much. He said, I've got to play this game at some point. So it's on my top five games I want to play this year. Now that you've played it, are you going to request it again? Absolutely. I mean, I'm probably going to start setting up games with you guys after this podcast is done. And, you know, because there's so much fun to be had here. And this kind of goes back to that comment that I made at the beginning of the podcast tonight. I'm starting to get past that idea of every game has to be this big production. And sometimes it really is the mechanisms that matter more than the production of a game. And this one, it's so elegant. It's so fun. It's so streamlined. And there's so much interaction between the players, you know, explicitly or otherwise, that it's just it's it's an absolute it's an absolute winner. And so, you know, I will I will fully admit that this is a you know a growth on my part as opposed to, you know, that really, you know, the games being different. But I absolutely will be asking for this one again. And I, I'm guessing that you guys are probably feeling the same way. Reiner Knizia, eat your heart out. You actually can make a fun abstract game, according to Chris. <laughs> Adam, what what about you? You, I know you like this game, but are you going to be requesting to play it again? Yeah, I love this game. Like I said, it had been on my shelf for two years, probably. And then I saw it on Board Game Arena, so it started firing that back up. And I saw this a whole new way to look at the game, and it just kind of reemerged. And it's been a fun resurgence of Azul for me. I love this game. I'll request to play it all the time. What about you, Jen? Again, I feel like I've played two games with love for Tim. It's like we played a totally different game for a while with a lot less. It had a lot less risk. It had a lot less, you know, the ability to to screw over your neighbor. And so now this is a, a much more intense game. It's fun. Um, I've been playing a lot. My two older kids will both play it. They were they've been introduced to it a long time ago. And in fact, at one point, uh, Danielle and Tim and I were playing a game at Tim's game table and our kids were arguing in the background about <laughs> playing as well because they were actually three of them were actually playing it at that point in time so it is a fam it is a family game in our families at least so it was um, a different experience to play it with adults again and remind it that can be intense and you can have like this huge strategy and because um, it had recently been something to just connect with my kids right I'm connecting with my kids I'm enjoying this but the game is totally secondary because I'm just putting tiles on the board and allowing them to have that fun and so this allowed you know the full-fledged adult human version of it to happen tonight and all of its glory like I think we're gonna look back at this game night and have it just be a true highlight so I don't remember the question. Yay, Azul. <laughs> I'm I'm already kind of sad this game night is over. I'm like, man, we we're it's all downhill from here. Just like Welcome Two has a fit with the right group at the right time. Um, I had a blast with it. Yeah, I played it a ton, so it's not going to be my first choice all the time. But of the two games we played tonight, and I spoke pretty highly of Welcome Two, Azul was a, even a more fun experience for me. And I think if it was four competitive game players this is the game I would want to play. It's more strategic, more aggressive choices to make 
so that you can win and you can stop someone else from winning. Welcome to, there's not a whole lot of interaction there, right? Like you're racing them for some goals, but otherwise you're just doing your own thing. And that's got its own pleasure. But Azul is, is my favorite of these lighter games. And it's a game that I've been introducing new players to for several years and still will continue to do that. Cause I think it's, it's easy to get people into and people tend to enjoy it. You know, they, they can discover the, the pleasure of hitting those big scoring goals and, and, and hitting one of the end game goals and, and stuff like that. It's a game that it will definitely come back in the right situations. Tim, I am curious. Would you did you feel the same way about the game when with the original rules that we were playing with? Did did you have all these strong feelings about um, how competitive it was? No, it's it's drastically better when I actually played by the rules in the rule book. So let's just drop the fact that I messed it up for three years and not ever talk about that again. So just to be clear, so we so when you say the or- original rules, Jen, you mean the fake tim rules right it's funny i was like oh my gosh i really want to ask like this you know heartfelt question to tim like how does he really feel about this and it still comes across as ribbing so eh, whatever tim taught us the wrong rules and we're never going to stop talking about it ever 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 well it's funny because we played welcome to tonight and chris like halfway through he's like no this is how it plays and i was like no it's not that's not how that works like chris has been teaching welcome to wrong don't don't try to <laughs> don't try to make it okay that you had the wrong for your whole life anyway it's a fun game i had a great time with it tonight and i will be asking asking for it in the right situations when we got a short period of time you know i don't know like if the four of us were in a room to play a game would this be my game of choice i had a blast but absolutely not because there's so many other amazing games that i'd rather play over a short 30 minute length game because the right length of a game is one to two hours as we all know but it's a blast it's a great game i did want to comment really quickly i got a chance to play azul summer pavilion a couple times recently what's interesting about that game is it has some really fun unique stuff going on but Azul is so tight, you're really restricted to what you can do, what you can place where. And Azul Summer Pavilion feels like it completely opens that up. And I think that's a, a negative for it. It's the opposite of what I said with Calico versus Cascadia. But I think the difference is that Azul is constrictive, but it, it's simple. It's not brain burning. So it's the it's right type of tough decisions for the weight of game, where Calico is too brain burning for the weight of game that it is, for the, the heaviness of it. And so Calico makes it more fun and relaxing for that weight of game. Azul Summer Pavilion, I feel like the the openness of it kind of just slows it down a little bit. It makes it less interactive, less exciting. It does have some other really fun, cool things going on. There's you know situations where you can surround a an area on your board and you get this bonus action, and, and that's blast. You know you get the dopamine hit from it. But I think after playing several games of Azul Summer Pavilion and a lot of games of Azul. I still think that the original game is probably my favorite iteration so far, but um, but Summer Pavilion's great too. So if you've if you played a lot of Azul and you want to try something different, you should check that one out. I wish Steve was here to tell you how wrong you are because it sounds like he much prefers Summer Pavilion. So it'd be interesting to get Steve's take on it to hear why he likes it so much better than original Azul. Well, Steve should have prioritized game night over work this week, and then he could have you know had his say. But um, since he didn't. Let's move on. All right, we're going to jump into a Welcome to theme cocktail, as well as some games that have been on our table right after this. All right, Chris, so what do you have for us this week? So... 
I often try to bring a little bit of interesting history and maybe some exoticism into our gaming cocktails, but tonight I'm going simple, I'm going classic, for a game of Welcome to Nothing Screams the 1950s like the Manhattan. Don Draper from Mad Men, Frank Sinatra, just the list goes on and on. So if you want to bring on a little mid-century atmosphere, just mix up a Manhattan. It's a guaranteed win no matter how you do in your game. So all that said, I do want to add a couple of little twists to make this a little bit more fun. So first, there's probably as many different recipes for a Manhattan as there are for a martini. I mean, it's a classic cocktail. Everybody knows it. Most people have tried one. But I'm going to give you my favorite recipe. It happens to come from the Carthay Circle Lounge in Disney's California Adventure theme park back in my old home of Southern California, which Tim, I know you know as well. So to come up with this, I did a little bit of tweaking of different recipes until I came up with something that approximated what I tasted at the Carthay Circle. And I have to admit, I got a little bit of a nudge on this one from a bartender there who gave me some hints after I had expressed my love probably you know one too many times. But the secret here is a dollop of juice from your maraschino cherries. But I'm getting ahead of myself, so let me back off for a second. Let me go back to the beginning and tell you what you're gonna need for this particular drink. You'll need two and a half ounces of rye whiskey, or bourbon is perfectly fine in a pinch as well. One ounce of sweet red vermouth. Dry will work if you like, but I have a sweet tooth, so I like the, the sweet version. Four dashes of Angostura bitters, and again, the magic ingredient, one teaspoon of maraschino cherry juice. You can use the cherries in your garnish as well, and that's perfect. Now, I know they're crazy expensive, but anybody who wants a truly magical experience with this drink should try Luxardo cherries. You can get them at your grocery store, but they're a pretty big investment. If you don't want to take out a home equity loan for your game night cocktail, the plain old ones you get for your ice cream sundae, they'll do fine as well, but seriously, it, it, it makes a huge difference. So I'd encourage you, if you're ever going to use them for anything else, give those Luxardo cherries a try. Anyway, you'll stir all those ingredients together with ice and then strain them into a rocks glass with, ideally, one giant ice cube. If you're a Carthay Circle, they'll give you one giant ice sphere with a little Mickey Mouse head emblazoned on the side. But if that's too much work, your drink will be just fine over regular ice cubes. And then when you're done, you grab your drink, start dropping fences because those estates aren't going to build themselves. Welcome to your perfect Manhattan. This drink brought me back, actually, because Chris used to make Manhattans for me when we first started playing games together. So as I was sipping on my Manhattan tonight, I thought about playing Cthulhu Wars and Clank Legacy around his dining room table and sip it on my hands with with chris so thanks for the uh, memories chris and uh it was a very tasty drink i still prefer the old-fashioned for a similar bourbon style drink but manhattan solid good times good times all right so let's talk about some games we've had on our table this week jen anything that you've you've been playing recently you know last week uh you and i tim went to uh, the silver key lounge here um in uh, mesa arizona and we got to play another game that's on my list which is viticulture i'm pretty resistant to learning a new game and so i was like ah but we went and you were patient and i was patient in the learning process and i really enjoyed it so i was a little nervous because it does have a lot it felt like it was a heavy game it felt like there was a lot to learn but as soon as i got to start aging my grapes that was so satisfying and there was just little pieces of it that were really satisfying. And so I can say now 
after everything we talked about on the top five show and how you, you know, Danielle had negative, negative experience that I could say to her, this is right up our alley. It's a little heavier than what we normally play, but I think that it will be really fun for us to do. Okay, cool. That's what, that's the main thing I was going to ask you about is, are you going to request to play this one again with me and Danielle? Will you be the one saying, Danielle, we should pull Viticulture off the shelf? Yes, I will. I will 100% be saying, I think we should do that. I'd, I'll be curious to see how, like, if it, where is it going to fall in? Like, what place is it going to take us? Like, we've been playing Carpe Diem. We've been playing Cascadia. Will it take the place of something like that? Where will it fall in to the, to the rotation? And I'd be curious to see where you think it's, what like, what will it take out for it to fall in for a little while? Right on. Well, I'm excited to, to play some more of it with you. And I did mention on last week's episode and how I liked playing with the expansions we did. So congrats for jumping right in and playing with expansions with me. That was that was nice, but I think it's the best way to play. I will also say that on my list was Catan. And while I have not played Catan yet, because that would have been a lot in three weeks to have three of my list chopped off. Tim and Danielle and um, their daughter did get my youngest, Catan Jr. for Christmas. His request for Christmas is he wanted a game with his age on it. And this one is six plus. And so he was so excited to have a game that had his age on it and he picked it up super fast. So did my eight-year-old and my 10-year-old and my eight-year-old and my five-year-old have been asking to play it nonstop. They get such a kick out of it. And so I will say that as a parent, it is really exciting to see them get all excited about something that is so familiar and so close to what what we do when we hang out. And so to watch them get excited about what we do and then want to do it is just super fun. So be careful what you ask for, because next Christmas you're going to get a feast for Odin <laughs> Jr. Yeah. <laughs> We also got Ticket to Ride First Journey while we're talking about that. So that was a game that, that, you know, Tim and Danielle and I played just one time when we were up towards the Grand Canyon. And I was like, oh, this is so much fun. And then I saw that there was a First Journey version of it. So boom, I got that for him too. And again, as a five-year-old, he picked it right up and is totally into it and asked me to play probably like three or four times a day. Well, I'm actually curious, and I'm sure our listeners are too, because I don't know how Catan Jr. plays. So can you tell us anything about like, how does it play? Can you give us a quick rundown? Well, I can't compare it to Catan, but I can say that you basically are, I think there's pirates involved. Here you go. This is going to be a great, this is going to be a great description. There are pirates involved and you are, you, you have molasses and you have swords and there's a, there's a, there's definitely a bird that helps you do, do things. And basically you have resources and those are your molasses and your goats and your swords and your gold and maybe there's something else and you have to basically use certain combinations of them to build pirate lairs and to sail pirate ships and the first person to get seven pirate lairs wins so it's just using those resources buying selling trading and building and it's so it's super simple that was a terrible description of it but honestly if i told you that you could probably just start playing we'd be good Okay, no, I have no idea how it plays though. Does it follow the kind of space-based rules where one person rolls their dice and everybody else gets something? Yes, that is, so I do have a piece of feedback on that for playing with the little, they have to really remain engaged. And so that is that is that is the piece that's both awesome and a little challenging because I think that part, you know, it is the little, you know, little brains have to let go for a second and then come back. But it doesn't make it less interesting. Like, again, both of the younger ones want to play. And so I enjoyed that piece because it kept me engaged. Okay, cool. Right on. Well, thanks, John. All right, Chris, did you have anything that you uh, have had on your table this week? 
So one thing that my family and I have been doing is uh, getting into our second round of the Stonemeyer game designed by Jamie Stegmeyer, Charterstone. And the first time that I played through this campaign, I played it with you. And it was an interesting experience. It was still relatively early in my gaming career. And it was the first time that I played a true legacy game. And I had a fun time with it. It wasn't my favorite game ever. It wasn't, you know, that kind of worker placement wasn't the kind of thing that gives me a big thrill. But I enjoyed the game. The second time around, I find it's a little bit more difficult to get into. And I think part of that has to do with kind of the the chance involved in how things play out in a legacy game. So, for example, in this, I'll try not to give too many spoilers, but there is a number of different types of minions that you can use player characters that you can collect over time to act as workers for you. We made it in this round to, I think, game 9 or 10 before we actually got all those minions out on the table, whereas you and I had them out, I think, after probably halfway through the campaign, probably six or seven games. And that makes for a huge difference in terms of complexity and in terms of the variation from game to game. And the way it's felt to me is far more limited in the game that I played with my wife. Again, I can I can only ascribe that to the fact that things played out in a certain way based on the actions we took, but I think it's unfortunate that a game that the first time was so much fun, the second time felt so mediocre because of the way things played out, and I guess we could play another round of it. But at this point, we've kind of gotten we've kind of gotten to the point where we're saying, let's just get through it. We got a couple games left to go, but then we're done. And that that makes me a little bit sad because it was one that I had high hopes for. In the end, she was enthusiastic about the idea of the legacy game. And we're still kind of excited about the idea of opening new boxes and making new decisions based on the the things that happened at the end of the game. But it was not the experience that I was hoping hoping for. And so that's not to say this is a bad game. Just to say that it has the potential to result in a kind of unsatisfying gaming experience but like what what's your what's your experience with that because i know you've you've played it a few times as well yeah so i played two campaigns one with four players one of the players had a really terrible experience with and we ended up can't stop in the campaign at like game 10 because he just was having such a miserable experience but he wasn't a very fun person to play games with to be honest so that had something to do with it so i played a second campaign fully with you and uh, we had a really good time with it but i think the game shines at a higher player count i think you know, three, four, five players is just going to be more interesting because you've got a, a bigger variety of buildings that are intentionally being built out on the board. So I can see that, you know, a two-player campaign might be a little duller. Now, did you guys find when you were playing it, did you tend to stick with, with buildings in your color for the most part? So you were kind of following the track that made sense? Or did you spread out and try to buy, you know, crates and buildings that that other colors would have dropped into the supply. Well, that was the interesting thing was that I remember when you and I played and for those who haven't played this game before, you develop personas over the course of the game and they generally tend to be focused around your particular character, your particular faction, but you can branch out into other factions as well. And in this game, there was a surprisingly high number of character personas that came up that were not associated with our original factions in a way that made things more challenging because the th- the the players and the the personas the different actions that happen within your own charter tend to be more powerful for you but in this in this game we had factions 
or uh, personas that brought us out into other areas of the board. And that seems like it would be a good thing. But in reality, what I found in the end was that the way things played out in this game, what really made sense was to just keep sticking within our own charters and getting those benefits over and over and over again. And so it ended up feeling very much like a game of, you know, multiplayer solitaire with, you know, my wife working on her side of the board and me working on my side of the board and really very little incentive to move outside into the other parts of the board. And that, that was a little bit disappointing. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. In fact, I think one of the things that's most interesting about the game is how many different directions you can go if you start delving into the other colors and saying like, yeah, Hey, I'm in the, I'm in the black charter, but I can pick up the personal objectives that the purple charter has, or I can go after the, um, you know, the card drawing uh, effects, the robots that the blue charter has. And this is going deep for somebody who hasn't played it. You won't know what I'm talking about here. So, you know, I played those two campaigns with the, with the real production. I had a good time with them, but I, there are flaws here, right? There are challenges that are going to make it a, a negative experience for some people. And, and I could probably talk for a good two hours on Charter Stone and what I like about it and what I don't like about it. There is a really great mobile app. If you want to try this game out, there's a really great mobile app that will let you play through a whole campaign and you can play against other people that you know, but you can play against an AI group, which is fairly competitive. I've had a lot of fun with this, playing it on the app. It's got a decent tutorial and it just walks you through it. You got to understand that the first game or two are going to be pretty dull because it's just a tutorial, essentially. But then after that, it gets to be a very challenging, interesting puzzle to me, and I've had a blast playing. And in fact, I just I was on a flight recently, and I just played through another campaign back and forth on another long flight and had a fun time with it. So I probably played a dozen campaigns of it and would happily sit down with another group that was engaged and wanted to play this game with me. But it, it's, got some, it's got some rough edges, it's got some flaws that I think can cause a negative experience. I'm sad to see that it happened for you and, and uh, Rachel. You know, I think you, you kind of have to be motivated to say, like, hey, I want to get in the other people's way. I want to try to stretch out and explore and figure out if I can find something that's going to, you know, make me more competitive than everybody else. So I think it's got a lot of interesting mechanisms, but it's, it's, it's a, a game that definitely you have the risk of having some, a, a poor time with, which is unfortunate. It was so groundbreaking, too, right? It's this competitive Euro game, this competitive legacy base Euro game, which as far as I know, just didn't exist before Charterstone did. You know, I think it did some really groundbreaking things, but I think there's an opportunity for people to take the lessons learned from that game. And hopefully we'll get another groundbreaking legacy Euro game that maybe doesn't have quite so many rough edges on yeah. it. And it was a good introduction to legacy gaming for my wife. I played a couple of them, but this is her first. One of the things you mentioned that the first couple of games really are kind of a tutorial she actually really liked that. She liked the fact that you didn't have to read this long instruction book to be able to get into the game, that it led you through, through the first couple of you know games in the campaign, that it led you through the basics of that. And then it added to the game rules as you progressed. That was actually a really nice feature. And I, I'm, I'd like to think that what we were experiencing here was just that we had you know, our style of play or the particular cards that we ended up drew, you know, drawing led to a relatively uninteresting set of options and choices. The fact that you and I played it and didn't feel that way suggests that maybe that was the case. And you've played like, you know, you say a dozen different campaigns and haven't felt that way. So maybe that's, you know, that that's a, a relatively limited situation. 
it was it was a bit of a bummer. What Rachel think of just the general production and the whimsy of this colorful world? Did it did, did that hit with her at all, or did did it not? You know, not really strike. I, the funny thing is, if the story ha- if it had been more cohesive and more things had been happening that felt really impactful, like a lot of times it felt like at the end of the game there were things that you could do to meet these what they call guideposts in the game where you're trying to accomplish certain goals. If those felt like they were really impactful on the games to follow, maybe there would maybe it would have been. I think she enjoyed the concept of the legacy game. She asked to play Pandemic Legacy after this one because she's a fan of co-op games. I've kind of talked her into uh, maybe trying Clank Legacy, which you and I played and was probably my favorite, one of my favorite gaming experiences of all time. Definitely my favorite legacy gaming experience. So I think it's, you know, it introduced some good concepts and I think she got into that. But this particular implementation was not was not optimal. Okay. All right. Well, thanks, Chris. Again, I would be happy to talk about Charterstone for hours. So if anyone <laughs> wants to chat about Charterstone, I've got a lot of thoughts about that game. But uh, so I had uh, I had a chance to play one game that has been on my radar for about a year, and that's called Takenhu Obelisk of the Sun. This is a game by Daniel Tashini, who is known for Zulk in the Mayan Calendar, as well as Teotihuacan, many other Euro games kind of known as the T-Series, because it's all about foreign places with T's on the names. And um, David Turksey was also a co-designer on this game, and he's known for Anachrony, of course. And Voidfall, I believe. Yeah, Voidfall as well. Yep. Some some pretty big credentials here. The game looked really interesting to me. It's It's got a table presence. It's got this big, huge obelisk in the middle of the board and the concept is it's a dice drafting game and basically as a round ends then the obelisk moves which essentially indicates that the dice are either in shadow or they're in light or they're in complete darkness so it's essentially kind of showing that it depends on the season or the direction of the sun and the dice then have different impact depending on whether they're in shadow or light or darkness so every round you know kind of changes the value of those dice how useful they are to you what they do for you and things like that the other mechanism and so so it's always had a table presence kind of fascinating but generally what's happening is that you're going to take the dice from one of the six sides of this obelisk and each of those six sides gives you a different action to take and the it's kind of represented on the board so the obelisk in the middle of the board and each of those six segments kind of points to what section of that board is And this board has a lot going on. I mean, it's crazy. Like, if you look at one of the segments, it's this huge table of all these different icons. This game is fairly heavy. It does have a lot going on. I will say, after a first play, that it is a very cool game. And I had a very fun time playing it and exploring it. I think it's probably heavier than it needs to be. Like, there are a lot of little side mechanisms and and impact that you have to learn rules to do stuff that are so non-impactful to the game that that was probably, you know, it kind of makes it less approachable than it could be for a game that could have been just as fun. I think Zolkin is a great example of a game that is very, very streamlined and has very deep strategy by the same designer. And this one is not that approachable at all. And the strategy, it's the game can be just as fun. The strategic choices can be just as interesting, but it adds a whole lot of extra, you know, just kind of brain power to process what the decisions are, what happens when you do this, and things like that. That makes it just a little bit 
less returnable to me. So my first thoughts on it is that I liked it a lot. And I'll compare it to um, Praga Kaput Regni, which is a similar style Euro game, has a lot of similar types of choices to it. I found this game a lot more fun and a lot more interesting than Praga Kaput Regni. Every single time I was making a decision, I felt like I was making an impactful decision. I, was, I felt like it was a tough decision. I was hoping that the other players weren't going to take the dice that I wanted before it came back around to me. A lot of engine building going on, a decent amount of interaction, a lot of interesting choices here. So I think it's a great game. I think it's a little bit too overloaded with mechanisms to be a, you know, to be a perfect game. But it is a game I would like to go back and play again at some point. You know, there's one little thing I want to say about, I, I was talking about all these like added mechanisms that you don't need in a game. One of my pet peeves is when a game adds extra rules conditions to say that you're going to get a scoring condition that happens if you take an action and it gives you like one to three points when you do that. Tapestry has that as well. When you place a explore tile in Tapestry, depending on how you rotate it and mm -hmm. how many other connected situations it attaches to, you might get between one and a maximum of six points right but you rarely ever get more than four points so it's usually going to be like one to four points you can get with one of those tile placements what bothers you about that I, it bothers me that it adds extra overhead to explaining mm -hmm. the game to somebody tapestry is a game that you play you'll get two to three hundred points in it and that two to four points you get when placing an explore tile has no impact on the winner of the game like it literally no impact and so you've now had to teach some extra rules. You have to make an extra decision when placing that tile, which isn't a very fun decision. And the only reason I like it in, in Tapestry is that at least it ends up so that the board looks a little bit more put together mm -hmm. because people are trying to make it put together. So I kind of like that. Tekenu has a situation like that where you are building these monuments in a city. And when you build the monument, you take a tile and you place it on the board. And there's an opportunity if you if the edge of the tile that you place matches up to the same color as the edge that you're placing next to you, you get one point for it. And this is a game that you you can probably get 50 to 100 points on this game, and you can get one to two to maybe four in a special situation. You get four points when you do that. All these other things going on on the board, we had to sit and understand the rules of the tile placement on this thing that had almost no impact on the game. And there was a few other rules like that, and that's what I mean by overloaded with rules. Like, it, it was a fun game, had a lot of fun decisions on it, but you could have streamlined a couple things here, and it yeah. would have been a better game. So, Which is a bit of a bummer, too, because, I mean, I, I saw some pictures that you had posted of this game, and it's dramatic. I mean, it has a real table yeah. presence. So to hear, you know, that it's overloaded by these not particularly impactful rules, that's, that's a bit of a downer. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, li listen, some people like heavier games. I like heavier games. And again, I like this game and I would go back and play it over a lot of other Euro games. But I think it could have been just slightly more kind of just streamlined down and it would have been a better game for it. So, you know, th this is a game that I would have a hard time recommending to somebody say, you've got to go play this game because it's going to take you an hour to learn the game and understand all these little rules. And some of them are just not that not that important that said if you can get into it and if you want to go through the effort of learning the rules this is a this is a it's a fun game it's a really solid game and i i had a good time with it all right well thanks for listening to the episode tonight if you would like to interact with us you can find us on twitter at bg underscore hot takes until next week take care everybody good night all bye bye thanks for listening